Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. I'm so glad to be here and so glad to be a part of everything that's happening and hearing these announcements and blessings are us and the read it again and the, the great ministry and the outreach feeding and the list could go on and on. And I think what strikes me most of all as, as someone who's uh, a, a great friend of City on a Hill. But let's be honest, I'm an outsider looking in in the sense that I don't know all the inner workings. But what strikes me most is it's not like Pastor Joe is up here saying, do this, do this, do this. It's the church, vibrant and active. You notice each one was a volunteer who's not, they're not getting paid to do this. They're not like, oh, you, you know, you do these outreach meetings, you get some, some, some kickbacks, you know, and some extra, you know. It's just, it's the church vibrant going, hey, let's do this. And Pastor Joe and Linda, you know, God bless you for creating this environment and then just sort of getting out of the way, you know, and letting God's people minister, right? I mean, you, if you're a member here, you're a minister here. And so as an outsider looking in, I just want to say that that's really beautiful and that's good. And I'm just excited. Joe's like, hey, sorry, the announcement's going on. I'm like, those announcements go on forever. You're blessing people. And, uh, and that has everything to do with worship why we're here to bring glory to God if you remember a couple of weeks ago uh, I started in a series in first Timothy and I'm going to continue that now so if you have your Bibles open up to first Timothy now if you're new to city on a hill you've never been here before um, my name is Tom Richter and I uh, am a pastor in Jamaica Queens and many years ago got to be friends with Pastor Joe and Linda especially their son James and um, as we hit it off I've begun to be able to be part of the teaching here, uh, the teaching team, which is exciting and good. So you don't know that a couple weeks ago I started in 1 Timothy. If you were here a couple weeks ago, then you heard me say that I would be here the very next week. But Pastor James, when he got to the line of scrimmage, he surveyed the defense and called an audible. And uh, instead, he took last week. And so I'm back with 1 Timothy this week. We're in the second part of our series. So want to catch you up just a little bit. First Timothy, I'm going to be in chapter 2. I've got the verses actually up here on the screen too. So if you turn in your Bibles or you turn on your Bibles, whatever, however you can get there, it's First Timothy chapter 2 and I'll put the verses up here on the screen. Before we do, quick review. Anytime you read a letter like First Timothy in the New Testament, the Bible's of course divided in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the New Testament there are these letters, they're called epistles. And when you read a letter in the Bible, when you read First Timothy or Philippians or Ephesians, you're reading other people's mail right in this case Paul is firing off a letter to Timothy his young protege in the ministry who's at a really good strong church name at at, at a city called Ephesus they actually get their own letter the letter to the Ephesians by the same author Paul but he leaves Timothy there and he tells him even as he's leaving even when he left Ephesus he's like I'm gonna leave here and there's gonna be these crazy people come in and try to teach all these crazy false teachings and sure enough when he left that's exactly what happened so he fires off this letter to Timothy like stay there don't let anybody look down on you because you're youth he was a youth he was only in his 30s so he was a youth and uh, <laughs> stay there be strong gives him some advice right and, and, and I really missed my moment the one thing I tried to point out a couple weeks ago was that the Bible was not like we read it nowadays like oh I'm sure a lot of this stuff was you know to prove that who Jesus was and to prove the resurrection actually interestingly uh, they didn't spend a lot of time trying to prove that Jesus risen, was risen from the dead they actually took some of that for granted because this stuff wasn't written hundreds and hundreds of years after the actual events 
This was written in 62 AD. So if you figure Jesus was crucified in 33, or dead, buried, and raised from the dead, he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. That's 29 years later. So the Bible's not like, we can prove it, we have factual evidence. They're like, just ask somebody, right? And I really missed my moment. And two weeks ago, a member of your church came up to me and said, Tom, you missed your moment. And he said, you know what happened? 29, you're trying to illustrate the fact that this is recent memory, people. It was just 29 years ago. He said, do you know what happened 29 years ago, Pastor Tom? I said, what? He goes, the Mets won the World Series. And I said, that's exactly right. And he said, you should have surveyed. I said, I'm going to do it next week. Back to real time. How many of you remember when the Mets won the World Series? It was 29. Look around, everybody. Look around at these hands. Look around. Look around. That's what Paul was doing when he talked about the resurrection. He was saying, everybody with their hand up who saw Jesus, I can talk to him. Yeah, that, that's how long ago this was, when the Mets won the World Series. Now, for my generation, we're like, that was eternity. I, it's not even possible. How can I believe? I'll need proof about Dwight, this, this Daryl Strawberry you speak of, or whatever, right? But there, there's people in here who know Tom Seaver. I mean, you know, like, like Old Testament. The point is, <laughs> the point is simple. 29 years ago, look... It's still got that new resurrection smell. Like, it's hot off the press, people. And what he's saying is, everybody agrees he's alive. A dead Nazarene Jew took a breath and walked out of the grave. We got to talk about that. That's what the Bible, that's what the New Testament is. It's going, we we, got to talk about, somebody, everybody wonders, what happens on the other side? What happens after death? We finally got somebody who can tell us. He went through, came out the other side, and what he preached makes the whole Old Testament point to him. It makes everything come into place. It's the fulfillment of Israel's story. It's it's a foreshadowing to the ultimate when our bodies are raised from the dead. And so Paul loses his mind over and over again. That's what he wants to talk about. Not, let me prove the resurrection. It's, what are we going to do with this resurrection? What are we going to do? He's alive. That forms the basis of why he's able to tell... in the book of first timothy why he's able to get timothy so encouraged and why i want you to be encouraged very specifically today on one specific point and it's this he writes all this stuff jesus christ and why why was he crucified dead and buried if you remember two weeks ago i don't i don't have a fifty dollar gift card for you but i'll be very impressed what was the bumper sticker theology this is first timothy chapter chapter one do you remember this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that jesus christ say it with me if you know it jesus christ came into the world to save sinners very good jesus christ came into the world to save sinners and if you left here a couple weeks ago i tried as best i could just to preach the good news of the gospel and if you're new to church and you're just checking this out. You're like, I'm just here visiting my family on Long Island for Thanksgiving. And they were like, come to church. But this doesn't look like a church at all. This is very different than what I'm used to. Right? And what am I supposed to do with all this? Listen, here's your message. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you're here and you're desperate for God and you came here, you didn't know what you were thirsty for. You've been searching all your life. I'm here to tell you what you've been searching for is God. He's been searching for you. And he knows your name. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save people just like you. And I got pumped up a couple weeks ago. Man, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news. Paul is a missionary. And so he's got the gospel front and center. And he gets to chapter 2. And he says, first of all then. The then means in light of all this stuff about the good news of the gospel. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he's alive because of all that. The very first thing I urge is what? That you... Go out and evangelize your neighbor. That would be a good thing, but it's not what he says first. 
I mean, Jesus is all about evangelism. We're supposed to preach the gospel. But that's not what he says first. First of all, then, I urge that you feed the hungry. Jesus was always talking about how you take care of the poor. And that is a very good thing. But interestingly, it's not first of all. First of all, he says, I urge that we all go down to the hospital and we begin healing the sick and create a ministry of healing. Healing is awesome. Jesus was always healing people. We should totally be about healing. But it's not first. Of all the things he says a church could be about. Come on, Ephesus. You're a good church, Paul's saying. You just got some crazy teachers in there, so let me bring you back to the basics. First of all, of all the things he could urge, get on a boat and join me on the mission field, or at least send me some money. No. Missions are awesome. Getting on a boat and going are awesome. But first of all, I urge what? Prayer. Pray. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Pray. The goal of today is to restore for you the priority and the primacy of prayer in the Christian life. I don't get bonus points if you walk out of here and you go, that was an eloquent sermon. Notice the structure of the outline. I don't get any credit for that. I don't get any credit if you're like, well, that was a really well-spoken sermon or that was an entertaining sermon. Nor do I get any discredit if you walk out of here and you go, that was a rhetorical train wreck. Like, I don't care about any of that. All that matters to me is, will you walk out of here and do it? You'll either do it or you won't. And I'm going to do everything I can in the next 20 minutes to see that you do it. Will you do it? Will you pray? And I think for most of us, are you like me? For most of us, man, we pray some. Like, that's how I am. I really do. I pray some. And are you like me? I don't even believe this when I say it, but have you ever, ever, have you ever caught yourself saying something like this? I don't know why I say this. I know it's not true. And yet I find, I say, maybe on my bad day, I'll say something like this. Somebody unloads on me. Somebody's sharing their problems with you. And they just unload. And it is like, wow, a lot of trouble and so many problems and things that you're like this is like layers to an onion and if i peel back one layer of your problem i'm just going to see more layers and the the point of the onion is the whole thing stinks like it's all bad and i don't know how i'm going to help you why do i do this what i what i why do i go into problem solving mode right and i'm going to take my little powers and i'm going to give all my power to you and i'm going to recommend the following book and I'm going to make this phone call. And they got real problems. And I'm going to solve it. And then at the end, I sort of realize, well, I can't really solve all these problems. And I hit them with this. Utter ludicrous. This is what I say. Well, at the very least, the least I can do is pray for you. Paul says that's actually 100% backwards. That is completely opposite. The most you can do for someone is pray. And the least are all those other little problems, right? Whether you're a dude like me and you want to like solve everything or whether you're like my wife and you want to empathize and just really listen and just share feelings. I'm like, solve it, forget the feelings, right? Either way, that's, those are both fine and good, whatever. But what you really need is something much greater. Dallas Willard talks about it like this. He talks about domains of power, domains of power. And the illustration is pretty simple. If your buddy pulls up in front of your house and calls you and says, yo, I got a flat tire. And if you, in your apartment, you have all the the tools necessary to fix the flat tire, you have the knowledge of how to fix his flat tire, it, it is, Dallas Willard says, you could spend time praying for that person and their flat tire. Like he's right outside your apartment, you got all the means necessary to fix it. You could, oh God! 
lot of air pressure. In your sovereignty, flood the Conti Pro Contact Continental R55 with your... Your time, however, would be better spent, Willard says, and I agree. It's actually better just go downstairs and fix the tire, right? Why? Because fixing a flat tire is within your domain of power. The problem, he says, and he's absolutely right, is that things spiral from being within our domain of power to well beyond our domain of power like that. That's the problem. When you stop and think about it, fixing a flat tire is actually about the limit of my domain of power. But your friends aren't coming to you that. They're coming to you saying, I'm addicted to heroin. They're coming to you saying, the doctor just got the test result back and he says it's malignant. I heard you're a spiritual person. You're the first person I call. What, what do I do? You start to realize this is outside my domain of power by a long shot. I keep calling. He won't even pick up. What kind of son won't even pick up from his own mother? What do I do about that? You got any advice, Christian? Okay, this is outside my domain of power. And for a Christian, what Paul's saying here is, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. The first thing he's reminding us is of the power in prayer, not in your ability to fix every situation. A prayer meeting is not a request for a bunch of advice. It's a request to get on our face before God. Because I don't, I don't know what to do. It cracks me up. And even in prayer meetings, this person will be praying about a job, praying about a job. And my first response is, well, you know, I know a guy. Like, we could get on this. Well, what am I doing? He's not looking for my solution. He's looking for the help of God. Then maybe after the prayer meeting, I might offer my solution as one of a many, many ways God might use. That's fine. But in that, what we need is God. It's like there are evil walls and strongholds before us. And the church at Ephesus is gathered on kegs of dynamite going, how are we going to get through this wall? I guess slap it. Just slap it in your human power as hard as you can. Get to slapping. Apollinaris, Rufus, you guys have lost the faith. I don't know about you, right? Uh, Timothy, get out there and slap this wall of power. Meanwhile, you're like, you're, you realize you're sitting on kegs of dynamite, C4, TNT. Yeah, but how are we going to bust through it? Paul says that's where the power is. That's, where, that's what prayer does. That's what prayer is about. And so that's why he says it's the most you can do. So to encourage you to pray, what Paul does here, and this is so good, what he does is not just sort of nag you into prayer. You know, this isn't like New Year's resolution. Like, we all know we're supposed to eat more fiber. We all know we're we're not supposed to eat bacon now. There's always something you're not supposed to eat. You know, we're not supposed, we all get it. We're supposed to exercise. We're not supposed to watch hours and hours of TV. It's going to fry our brain. Everybody gets that, you know. But, But this isn't like, take your prayer vitamins, everybody. You know, it's just a nag. What he does is this. He takes prayer and he, he talks about why we should pray by grounding it in the doctrine of who God is. And when he tells you who God is, the why becomes very natural. He does it in these verses right here. So let's get right to it. I want you to leave here with prayer encouragement. For everybody who's been discouraged in prayer, I want you to walk out of here prayer couraged. Here it is. Here's why. I mean, the first is right there, just for the record. First of all, then I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All right, that all people's very interesting. And I don't want to skip just too quickly past that. If you, if you look ahead to verse 4, we're going to come back and get 2 and 3. But if you look at 4, Paul writes, Who desires Jewish people to be saved? No. Who desires just Gentile people to be saved? No. Who desires certain gender to be saved? Just save the women or just save the men or just save this ethnicity. Who desires all people to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If we're not careful, you move too quickly past this. Ponder that. The heart of God is a heart that desires to save all kinds of people. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That's the heartbeat of God. To save all kinds of people. Think about that. It didn't have to be that way. God didn't have to show mercy to anybody. But when he did choose to show mercy in his heart of compassion, he could have restricted salvation to a certain class. Just if you're in this economic bracket, then then you're worthy of salvation. No. Or he could have just saved one race of people or one gender of people or just one age group of people. But he desires to save all kinds of people. And so that's the first prayer encouragement, if you will. That's the first encouragement to pray. And I'll give you three of these. Here's the first. Pray like God wants to save all kinds of people. Because he does. In the heart of God, there's your first encouragement for this intercessory prayer. If you're a note taker, I'll give you three of these to jot down. Pray like, the first is pray like God wants to save all kinds of people. And this is why that's so important. If, over time, if you're not careful, you just sort of, there's, there's this kind of missional drift about what a church is all about. You can't help, in some ways, it, you have to fight against this. It's sort of the natural, it, it, uh, uh, like a car that's not been aligned properly. It sort of naturally wants to drift. And the natural alignment to drift as a church, as, as the rescued people, is to drift sort of inward. Here's what I mean. Over time, you start to think, well, a church is just sort of for church people, you know? Churches are for church people. And here we've all gathered. I mean, we're here. We must be church people. And you kind of stop, you stop thinking about your neighbor. You stop thinking about your hairdresser, your, 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 your favorite checkout person, all the people you mentioned that you could get. You stop thinking about the guy at the car wash and the pizzeria and all these people. Why? Because you're kind of like, well, I don't know. It's like, as I think about my neighborhood, I guess if there's any church people then they'll, that they're in the church, I guess they'll probably want to come to church. And if you're not in a church, you're just sort of not into it, right? And it's natural why you think that, because all the other organizations and clubs work that way, right? I mean, you, you only join the chess club if you're into chess. You join the jazz band if you're good at jazz music. You join the accounting club if you have no life. Everybody understand? You only do these things if you're already in. Nobody joins the chess club and goes, I I know nothing about this. I can't wait to find out, right? Everyone will very quietly look at you funny, right? But the point is, you don't come here. A church is totally different. A church is this crazy organization. You name one other. Every organization exists for the benefit of its shareholders, A church is the only organization I can think of. We exist for the benefit of those who are outside. A church exists not for the benefit of the members, but for those who are outside. Why? Because this church is a missionary church. Do you know why your church is a missionary church? Because every church is a missionary church. That's our Lord. That's our leader. And God did not put you here on Middle Island to be a country club. He put you here to be an emergency room for hurting hearts. And how quickly those lighthouses, which were so good at rescuing the perishing, bringing them in and bringing them back to life. Eventually we rescued enough and now we're kind of full and I don't know, we'll let somebody else rescue. But not you. You're a city on a hill. A lighthouse, a beacon. And Paul says that to remind churches of what they're to be about. Their mission. That God is on a mission to save all kinds of people. If you're not a church person, you're the perfect candidate for His grace. You're exactly who he wants here. 
and to be, you know all this. I'm just reminding you that when you think about your neighbor, they're all, every single one of them is just pre-Christian. That's it. And we got to treat them like that. Who knows where God's already been working. Getting a little ahead of myself, but you get the point. Paul commands us to pray that way so that we don't drift from the mission of preaching the good news and rescuing the perishing to sort of inside. Now there's an encouragement here, I guess you could say, to expand your prayer list. Open up your eyes. Do you tend to only pray for one type of person or just your family and friends? A simple step for you would be to add a coworker, Add a, a neighbor. A bigger step would be to add a nation. Adopt a nation. Adopt a people group. If you don't know where to start, you can start with the newspaper. But I'll give you a great resource that our church, many people in our church use, and I'm sure some of you use it too. Uh, Operation World. You can remember that, right? Operation World. Go to operationworld.com, click around until you find their prayer calendar. And one thing they can do is they can give you a people group, one for every day. All, and, and, and when you get through the whole year, you will have prayed for the whole globe, right? Uh, uh, just last Sunday at our church prayer meeting, we prayed for uh, 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 Tonga. I had no idea where it was. I had to look it up, right? Uh, and it was, uh, it turns out, it, fun fact for any of you who didn't know, it's off, it's off the coast of New Zealand. Because it's funny, I went to Google Maps and I zoom out and it's just surrounded by, it's like, it's this big on a map. I know you don't know the scale, but it's tiny, right? And I zoomed out and it's still, it's still, in the, and all I saw was blue. And I zoomed out again and all I saw was blue. And I zoomed out again and all I saw was blue. And by the time I saw where, kind of oriented, I was like, oh, it's near like Australia and New Zealand. Then I couldn't see Tonga anymore. It was this tiny little thing. And here we are, a group of people in Queens, New York, praying for Tonga. And this is what struck me. I could have lived my whole life and not known where that was. God's always known. And that those people, he loves them. And, has, and knows the hairs on their head. And how I think about he knows my every story and I'm praying for parking spots. He's praying for, if they have parking spots in Tonga, they're praying for them too. I'm sure they do, right? It's just that they're surrounded by an island. How do they get cars there? There's, you've got to understand, there's nothing. Some of you should Google it. Not during the sermon, later. And pray for them. Anyway, I wouldn't have known them without Operation World. And, uh, and, and, and the point is, as long as there's a human being on that little island nation, uh, what does the Bible say? His desire is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Imagine walking into a prayer meeting where someone's weeping as they're clutching a globe. That's the idea. God's heart beats just as strongly for a, uh, uh, a man in Islamabad who grew up as a Muslim. God's heart to save that man beats every bit as strong as a little boy who grew up as a Southern Baptist in Murray, Kentucky. That's my point. His heart. My heart may not be that way, but his does. And when you intercede like that, when you pray like that, and you know with ISIS and all the evil in the world, you know the temptation. I know it all too well. The temptation is to escape the reality of the world. Prayer, intercession, which intercession comes from two Latin words, which means to cut between. And that's what you're doing. Who are we cutting between? Between people and perdition. Between people and hell. A Christian goes, hold on now. Let me cut in there. Let me intercede. Let me plead on their behalf because they're on a pathway to hell and destruction. And I'm going to step in. I'm going to stand in the gap for them. And if they're going to go to hell, they're going to go over my dead body. Because I'm going to plead for them, right? That's intercession. When you do that, you do the opposite of what the world markets every day to do. See, here's the deal. When you intercede, you embrace the harsh reality of the way things are. And you embrace it with the hope of the gospel. 
so much of your day, if you think about it, mine too, so much of your day is actually a temptation to escape reality. And if you own one of these, this is the worst offender. Let me tell you, this little rectangular box that is so shiny, and it is unbelievable, it, it can create for me the reality I want. Perfect. And in that moment, right, if you didn't hear what happened, someone apparently is playing Angry Birds while I'm preaching my heart out. I'm just, just, just jokes. The point is, I, and I'm not just talking about playing Angry Birds. Think about this, social media. What am I doing? I'm creating a very filtered reality. See, I only follow the people I want, even by news. I only get the news stories that I'm interested in. And what am I doing? I'm carefully cultivating something that is, you ready for this? Not real. I'm escaping reality. And all the while, the shiny little box tells me I'm important. I get an inflated sense of importance. I forget about Tonga because, you know, who cares about them? They're not in my news feed. No, it's me. And this little box tells me exactly. I get a number of how liked I am. I, I can actually numeric, I can assess a numerical value called a like to my self-worth. That, that's dangerous. See? And that's what, when you intercede, oh man, what a way to push back on that. And for everybody under 30, you've got to listen to me carefully. Really carefully right now. Intercession may be your great hope to push back and to say, I will enter into reality. And, and if you enter into reality, the first thing that happens is you're completely depressed. No, I'm going I'm to get serious about the news. And I'm going to read about ISIS. And I'm, Ten minutes later, you're like, I'm ne never again. I'm back to Angry Birds. I can't take it. It's too depressing. But I didn't say go into news. I said go into intercession. You take the harsh reality of ISIS. And you take the hope of the gospel. You go, let's do business. Christianity is the only thing robust enough to do that. Secular humanism goes, uh, here's ISIS, we need better education. Yeah, yeah, that'll help. Here's ISIS, we need to get a different political party in office. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. No, Christianity says, here's the way the world is, and here's, the, here's who God is. And I'm going to enter into this reality called intercession. Now that is power, and that lifts you out of the false self-importance, and you, you become appropriately small again. See? And we need that. And if I can't do it, let me, I read this, I was, so I was preparing all this, and I was kind of, you, you get into some crazy stuff when you're sermon preparation, and the sermon leads to like, First Timothy meets social media, meets intercessory prayer. So naturally, I found a quote involving all those things, and here it is, and I just, after I read it, I was like, well, that's it. I've, well, anyway. just in case anybody else need to be punched in the gut by John Piper. I read that and was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible human. But that's right. On the last day, one of the great uses of this will be proved to the world that it wasn't from lack of time. But God, God desires to save all. And so he desires to save all kinds of people. And so one of the most important things we can do, Paul says, first, is pray. Pray like God wants to save all kinds of people. So, first of all, that's why he says, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, as you do that, as you pray for Operation World, and as you're praying for all these countries, you start to realize something. You realize, you know, rulers and people, these, these political figures and the kings and the, and, the, and the caliphs and all these powerful chieftains, rulers have a lot to do with how the country goes. Like, if these rulers are corrupt, we really got to not just pray for the people, but man, there's some corruption in the government. 
And that's why Paul makes total sense. Look at what he says in the next verse. Specifically when you pray, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Isn't that good? He's saying, pray for leaders that they will not be a roadblock to the gospel. Now, Paul is not naive. Paul's been in prison because of a lack of religious freedom. Paul preached the gospel and they threw him in jail because of basically he was preaching the gospel. He was out and he was writing this letter. He was about to go back and he was going to end by being beheaded. So Paul is not naive. He's not saying, pray for the kings that, that Rome can become a Christian empire again. Not again, they never were. But you know what I mean? He's like, are you kidding me? What, what does Paul care if like, oh, what we need is a democratic Caesar or a Republican Caesar. Are you kidding me? Caesar's Caesar. Caesar's going to do what he wants. All he's asking is just give us enough, have enough good sense if the rulers are, are not corrupt and if they'll have enough good sense, they can put down the rule of law and they can keep the roads safe so that more missionaries can go. And they can keep the high seas safe from pirates and bandits, and I can send more missionaries. That's Paul. He's, his concern is the gospel. He's not looking for like, you know, I want Caesar to take care of my every need. He's like, just give me enough space to have some religious freedom to preach the good news. And he says, you should pray that for kings and all who are in high authority. And because I've already gotten a little political, let me just push a little further. Uh, look at this one. Look at this word right here. I'll, look at this. For kings and all who are in high positions. For those of you over here, I was pointing to the word all. For those of you looking backwards, I was pointing to all. Here's what I mean. If you're here today, I expect you, if you're in the room, I expect the most politically die-hard, conservative member of the Tea Party, I expect you to pray for Nancy Pelosi. At the same time, I expect you, the most left-leaning liberal in this room, to get on your knees and pray for Ted Cruz. Pick your nemesis. Everybody understand the point I'm making? You say, but I don't like them. I don't agree with them. I did not command you to like them, and I did not command you to agree with them. But Scripture compels you to pray for them, and pray for them specifically. But do I have to pray for them that they'll be in office forever? No. Pray for them that they help create a government that doesn't put up a bunch of needless roadblocks to people exercising the Christian faith. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I know my slide says 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, and this is the first time I've realized they're all wrong. It should be 2. But the point is still true. Everybody understand the point? That's why we pray for these people. You know, we, well, you're going to hear me. I'm going to pray for Barack Obama. I'm going to pray for those that are in authority and in high power. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I don't get to make the rules. This is what my Lord tells me. This is what the Word of God tells me. And I pray specifically that they make a rule of law such that Christians can exercise religious freedom. And you're going to join me in that because you too. We're, see, the church is under the Word of God. The church doesn't get to say, well, we like these parts. We don't like, we don't like these parts. So pray like God wants all kinds of people to be saved. My hope is not in the Tea Party. My hope is not in the liberal policies. My, my hope is not in any political party. I hope I've made that clear. My hope is in the Lord. And, that, and yours is too. And that's why we, we pray like God wants all kinds of people to be saved. I did what I always do. I spend all my time on the first point, And it scares everybody because then I have two more points. And they're like, for real? So the, the other two aren't as long. In fact, this one's really short. Look at verse 3. This, this, this whole praying thing that Paul's telling Timothy and Pastor Tom's telling you, yeah, this is good. 
and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. You ready for this? This is some deep stuff. Pray like it pleases God. Because the Bible says it is pleasing. So it pleases God. See how that prayer is pleasing. So it pleases God. So we should do it because it pleases God. We good? Can we move to point three? <laughs> like, what more reason do you need? Uh, there is this one little thing. If you're not careful, if you grew up in church like I did, if anybody's been around uh, good, uh, good Bible preaching doctrine for a long time, there's actually a little bit of an error you can fall into if you're not careful, and it's this. Because we have drilled down for so long, and this is right that we drilled down on this, and I don't want anybody to undrill, but because we've drilled down so long on the following point, before you become a Christian, there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. That's absolutely true. You've heard me preach it. I'll preach it again someday. Probably every day. But the, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Why? Because you are a rep, before you become a, a Christian, you're the lost sheep desperate in the wilderness, okay? You're not going to do any good. All you did was get lost, okay? Your only hope is if a shepherd is looking for you. So there is nothing you can do that in any sense gets leverage on God. Or like, you know, well, if you save me, Lord, I'll give you money or I'll give you my life. Right? Stop, right? There's no good that you can do. Because we've heard that truth so much, and because it's true, if we're not careful, then we think, well, once we're saved, I guess there's nothing I can do to please God. But nothing could be further from the truth. That's not true. No, once you're saved, in the sense of pleasing God to earn your salvation, there's nothing you can do. But there's all kinds of things we can do that put a smile on God's face. And this is one. Praying. Praying in this way. Praying for the world. And you can imagine why, right? Imagine from the perspective of God. You saved this woman. She was bound for hell, eternity apart from you, but out of your mercy and grace, you sent some Christians and they witnessed and this happened and that and you arranged and you saved her. And look at this guy over here. You saved him. And now what do you hear him doing? Are they lording it over other people? I'm saved now. We king's kids. Burn, baby, burn. The rest of y'all heathen. Right? What are they doing? You listen carefully. What are you doing? What are you doing? They're crying out for their friends. How would that make your heart feel? Wait, what was that? God, you saved me. Here I am in Tonga, and nobody knows about us. But you, but you saved me. Now, will you save my friend? Will you save Bob? Will you save Gina? God, you saved me. Will you save her? If you're God, you would be like, yes. It means love took. It's like it worked. It's stuck. My love is in them, and it's like working. You'd be like, yes, it would please you. So pray like it pleases God, because it does. And last, pray, the last one is pray like God is already working, because he is. Every time you kneel to pray, you kneel beside your Lord. You don't beat him there. Every time you intercede, you're like, whoo, man, getting up early today, I'm the first one here. You should hear the words, actually. He's calling you to join him in his work, not lead the charge. He's already working. Doesn't that give you hope to know that when the, la- when the lights go off in this place and everybody leaves, there's still one who's crying out on this altar for souls. And he's asking for people to join him in this good work. So pray like God is already working. Look at verse 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you understand that? What Paul is saying is the reason we can pray with confidence and pray for all kinds of people is because there's one God over all the universe. Who is the God over all of Southeast Asia right now? The one God, that's who. There's a stretch of land, missiologists, people who study missions work, call it the 1040 window between the latitudes 10 and 40 that's just dark with the gospel witness. People are closed to the good news of the gospel. And to send missionaries there is very dangerous. Some of the hardest places. Who is the God of the 1040 window? Our God. There is not one square inch of the universe that is not rightfully God's. And if people in those parts of the country don't, don't claim that God is God, even the rocks will cry out that God is God. And deserves glory, deserves to be praised all around the earth. And not only that, there's one way to God. Look, one mediator. Do you see that? One mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between between two people that got beef. Two people got some issues to work out, okay? And in this case, the issues were of eternal significance. Humanity has rebelled against a holy God. Now, usually... I've mediated, I know you've mediated some things before, Pastor Joe. And usually when you go into a room and there's mediation, let's be honest, there's three sides to every story. His side, her side, and the truth. And the problem is, nobody can really get at that truth but God. But in this case, there is one side. It's God's side and whatever a human offers up, I'm sorry, God did not do anything wrong in this case. He did nothing but good and we rebelled against Him. Now we need a mediator in that situation. Well, good luck with that. I mean, who would you get to mediate that situation? Who can step in between? The only one with enough authority to step in and to speak from God's side of the boardroom would have to be God and nothing less. And the only one who could step in and represent humanity to God would have to be a human and nothing less. I mean, the only way this would work would be, and this is crazy, but what you would need for mediation to work between God and humanity, the only way humans have a hope in the eyes of God would be if you had some sort of being that was all God and all man. And that's what Christians teach is what happened at the manger in Bethlehem. See? That we have one mediator who, Jesus Christ, who represented humanity to God, and Christ Jesus, who represented God to humanity. One mediator, Christ Jesus. And that's why he was able to save. He was able to bear the wrath of God. Only God could do that. He was able to live a perfect life of human obedience to God. Jesus represented humanity. He bore the wrath of sin. He did that for us and our salvation. So there's one God and one way to God. And I can imagine, maybe, just maybe, if you brought your friend here today and they're not a Christian, they're reading this, at least I would read this for the first time, and be like, one God, one mediator. Who's the God over South Asia? Our God. Ooh, seems a little exclusive, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't like hearing that. A little narrow. Like, you're telling me there's one way to God the Father and it's only through faith in Jesus Christ? Yes. It's exactly what I'm telling you. I mean, don't, you might want to modify that a little bit because this is going to be podcasted and people make these press releases. And, you know, like, like you're, you're honestly preaching that kind of narrow exclusivity. Yes, I am. And, and, and just in the moment where you're about to accuse me of being so narrow, here's what the Bible does that's so amazing. Here's what God did. There's one God. Uh, yes, I can't apologize for that. There's one mediator between God and man, the, the man, between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's one way to God the Father. So yes, it seems very narrow and exclusive. Look at the very next words. Who gave himself as a ransom for 
help me with this one. I thought about this statement, and I want to get it right. Yes, Jesus Christ is the only door to God the Father. But praise God, the only door is an open door. And all may enter by faith. He's no respecter of persons. He's, he's not, he's, in the sense that people mean exclusive, he's not exclusive at all. He's the only way to God the Father. And I would, I would further add, what kind of arrogance do we have in this country where we could read this, we could talk about this, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. We are wrecked by the fall. Our country's in shambles. Everybody agrees the world is not okay. We desperately need salvation. What kind of pride do you have to read that sentence? Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And why about the word only? Seems to me we're burying the lead here. The headline of that story is salvation, right? I mean, come on, think about all the people who suffer with cancer. Think about you who've beaten cancer in this room. You who are struggling with it. You have a family member. Tomorrow morning, headline on every major newspaper. A cure for cancer found. Does anybody write in and go, a cure? Seems a little narrow. You'd be like, you're missing the point, bro. Right? I mean, if I'm drowning, if I'm about to, and I'm on my last breath, and the piece of driftwood is left, the rescue boat pulls up, I don't go, is this the only boat you could send? I mean, how many ways of, how many ways of salvation does humanity deserve? How many ways was God supposed to send? What's your number? Seven? 18? 236? X plus five? Like everybody, what, what, what is it then? I'd say, like, we could whine that there's not a million ways to God, or we could get on the boat, man. In one way. I can't apologize for that. He's the only door. But the only door is an open door. He's made a way. And that's the important part of that story, right? Yeah. This word ransom means to purchase, to buy back. It's, it's, sub, it's substitutionary. You see that? He gave his life as a ransom. A ransom is what would be given for someone who was in prison or enslaved or kidnapped. Just the same way we use the word today. And payment would be offered. And in this case, we were imprisoned under sin's power. We were in bondage to sin, enslaved to sin with no hope but eternal death, eternal separation from God. And Jesus Christ gave his life as a substitute. He went under the punishment so that we could go free. The ransom price was his life. That's what it means in Romans 5.8 when it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The heart of the Christian message is still that Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. That means die for many. That means save the many from their sin and from its guilt and power and penalty and eternal punishment. The only door is still an open door. So, we pray like God wants to save all kinds of people. We pray like it pleases God because it does and we pray like God has already been working. The, the thing is, I meant this sermon to be encouraging. What I mean is I meant you were, everybody was supposed to leave and we were going to like, you know, pray more for the nations and, and Operation World and all that stuff. And, and we were going to pray and we were going to be encouraged because of who God is. Like, He's already working. You know, we're, not, we're, we're joining Him in His work. And I meant it to be encouraging. Like, we're, 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 we're all, you know, we're, we're, we're praying like it pleases God. And that's another reason to pray. 
But I can't escape the fact that for many, you're going to leave here and you're going to hear all that and you're going to be like, man, that's good advice. But like, it further proves how weak in prayer I am. Because that's how I'm thinking I would hear it. I'd be like, yeah, I, I know all that. And I even... I even knew, I may not have known exactly one, two, three from second, you know, first Timothy chapter two, but I knew like all those reasons are good reasons why I pray, and I, I don't, right? And that's the thing, like, I get that, and I thought, how how am I gonna illustrate, you know, this whole thing, like, to show that that for those who have this real deep discouragement about prayer, how am I gonna do this? And then God sent me an angel this morning. His name is Joe Lecce. And <laughs> And when Joe, Joe, how many of you remember Joe's heart monitor thing from like 45 minutes ago? It wasn't that long ago, yeah? Okay. Wasn't that convicting? Like, let's pause just for a moment and relive that. Joe said that God has a heart monitor that's 24 hours that one day we're going to see on the big screen. Doesn't that give chills to anybody? Like, every motive of my heart? Like, okay, okay, forget the motives of my heart. Just the stuff I've done outwardly. Someone looking outside. If we put that on the big screen, I'd be like, all right. And now, not only that, but now the inner workings and motives of my heart are going to be seen on the big screen. Like, he's about to get his results. We're going to face God, and that's like going to be our results, right? And then you're going to watch my results, and you're going to be like, we let you preach to us? And I'm going to see yours, and I'm going to be like, I bothered preaching to you? Right? So, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, two-way street. <laughs> Sorry. A self-justification in all of us, right? What would it be like to get your results back and to see prayerfulness every day and to see utter faithfulness and even when it costs you to see utter obedience and you start looking through the film you start looking through the results and you go wait a minute this this is like perfect prayerfulness this is like 100% obedience to God all the time this is like my life's about to be taken from me and you said you recorded here that I like sweat drops of blood I never did any of it And then to hear, oh yeah, yeah, I took the perfect record of Jesus and have credited it to you. And so you have nothing to be ashamed of. Your shame has been covered on the cross. Your prayerlessness has been dealt with by the one who, in Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And when you pray, you are heard because of Christ's reverence. What he has won for us. Your prayer's too little. What you're asking for God, from God, it's, it's too small. You come to church and you're like, I just want a better life and not to sin so much. And he's ready to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and like a perfect record of righteousness in Jesus Christ. He's like, raise the bar, kid. I got all kinds of stuff in store. Right? We're asking for too little. But his blood was shed. And it, he said, I mean, he said, as we turn our attention to the table, these are his words, not mine. He said, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, right, this is the very night he's about to go to the cross and, and face that trial. The Bible says that he took some bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then after supper, in the same manner, these are his words, not mine. The Bible says he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the same phrase. It says, this was shed for the ransom of many. 
There's that word again. That he died as our substitute for us and our salvation. For some of you, you understand a guilt concept. You know that he took away our guilt. That's, that's exactly right. Others of you, it connected. When I talked about shame, I talked about putting up there on the big screen all your sins. He dealt with the shame. It's, it's, it's the same, same concept there. That remission of sin. That price that was paid for us and our salvation. So let us pray this week. Pray and have that intercession grounded in the heart of who he is. Paul says prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Let's do that now. Father, we pray thanking you first and foremost for the great gift of salvation that you have poured out that is symbolized by this cracker we're going to eat, this piece of bread, and this cup that we're going to dip it in, and and we're going to take the the cup that way. These are symbols of this great sacrifice, and we give you thanks. In our small and limited way, with such a little domain of power, we give you thanks. And we, we, we pray for the world, Father. We, we intercede for the world. Those that are far from you, they may be right here in this room today. And they need you. They don't just need the, they don't need the symbols, the, the bread and the cup. They need you. They need the real thing. And I pray for whoever brought them here, that they would continue to minister to them and continue to seek after them and help them. This church wouldn't be a place of church for church people, but they would exist, continually exist, for those who are lost, for those who are hurt, for those who are broken. We pray for every Christian in this room who feels discouraged in prayer, that they would be just a little bit encouraged. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.